there we go. So thanks for tuning in. I'm going to try and keep it short and sweet. I just got a couple of thoughts to share with you, uh, a couple of very specific ones on underwriting files because uh, I've had a lot of feedback on things going on around payment deferrals uh, and the like. So, so we'll talk about that. But first off, it's Monday morning. Book of the week. I mentioned this, I think, last week at some point in time. Ask More by Frank Sesno. This is a book that somebody like me really needs to pay attention to. So I even got the hard copy because I'm going to do the whole thing where you tune into Audible, play it at about, you can actually play it at about 2.5 speed when you have the written copy in front of you. And so you're reading it. So it's coming in through the eyeballs. You're listening to it. It's coming in through the, the earballs, as they say. And uh, get the highlighter out, highlight, and away you go. And absorb. And of course, the, the, the title says it all, right? Ask more. And that is our business, to ask more questions. Ask difficult questions. Ask questions we're not entirely comfortable asking, but that's what we need to do. And I know in life in general, I need to ask more questions. I need to shut up and stop talking more, which, of course, the irony of talking about that in a monologue where I have no one to ask questions is not lost on me. So great book. Again, Ask More by Frank Sesno. Worth picking up, hard copy, audible, whatever, whatever turns your crank. So a couple of things I'm thinking about. First one, in a more general sense, um, Dunbar's number. So some of you are probably familiar with Dunbar's number. I think it's popped up again and, and popped up somewhere in pop culture just recently. So Dunbar's number, uh, according to Wikipedia, I thought rather than me explain it, I'll just read the Wikipedia uh, opening line. Dunbar, Dunbar's number is a suggested, suggested cognitive, speaking of cognitive, wow, I got to back up a notch here. It's definitely Monday morning, a little rusty. Dunbar's number is a suggested cognitive limit to the number of people with whom one can maintain stable social relationships, relationships in which an individual knows who each person is and how each person relates to every other person. So that, that range of people in Dunbar's number is 100 to 200. And so most people split the difference. And you'll hear Dunbar's number referred to as 150. So it's commonly expressed as 150 close relationships. And again, the, the nuance to that to keep in mind is it's, it's not just whether you can have 150 close relationships. Maybe you feel like you can have 500 close relationships. But it's understanding how all those people are interconnected. Um, you know, as, as my social circle through work in particular, uh, my work circle, as that grew and grew and, and as I started going back and forth across the country and then, you know, you're, you're meeting people in different cities as well and, and it really starts to broaden, uh, you don't realize how people are interconnected at all. You completely have, you have no idea. And uh, so you, I think the lesson I learned, um, and I didn't learn it the hard way, I just kind of figured it out. Luckily, luckily, I didn't learn it the hard way, is that just about everybody you're interacting with in life is connected to someone else you know. And, and, and that's true, the bigger your social circle gets. So when you go past Dunbar's number, where you actually do know how everyone is interacted, you really just have to operate from the default position that this person knows people who are really important to me. So when you're interacting with a client, you've got to interact with that client in the same way in which you would interact with a friend or a family member 
because the odds are that client actually is connected to one of your friends or family members. Now I'm drifting into the whole, uh, you know, six degrees of separation uh, topic as well. But Dunbar's number is applied in a lot of organizations supplied in the military, uh, where no commanding officer is typically responsible for more than 150 direct reports. Happens in business a, a lot as well. Uh, one of the best examples, I think, was uh, Bill uh, Gore of Gore-Tex fame. So if you're a, a skier or an outdoor enthusiast, you're, you know what Gore-Tex is. I think everybody knows what Gore-Tex is. But Gore-Tex, as that company grew, when the first factory hit 150 people, uh, Bill decided to open a complete separate facility. They didn't move to a bigger facility and start packing hundreds and hundreds of people inside, you know, bigger and increasingly bigger uh, manufacturing plants. They had pods, basically manufacturing pods, where one manager was overseeing an entire production team of 150 people, which is kind of interesting. So it's sort of it, for the, the more cerebral of the bunch, it, it begs the question, do you sit down and make a list and figure out where you're at? And, uh, and this is, I think, when you come to uh, another great book, Necessary Endings, you come to a point where you realize there are some people that need to be in that 150 who maybe aren't. And there are some people in that 150 that, that maybe need to move into group B, but that's a different conversation for another day. But I think it's interesting, like I say, the, the takeaway from Dunbar's number is beyond 150 close social connections, you no longer really know how people are connected to one another. And you just need to assume that the person you're cutting off in traffic and then giving the finger, which is like really counterintuitive, right? Like you cut someone off, you make the mistake, they honk at you. And then a lot of us react by flipping the bird to the person who's honking at us. And they're only honking at us because we cut like illogical. And we have those moments, right, in line at the Starbucks or I remember at, at Ikea in line for the hot dog and the woman was in front of me was just furious that this young kid, 15, 16 years old, was taking so long to prepare each individual hot dog for the people. The line was moving so slow and it's like a hot dog and a pop for a buck, right? And she's just fuming and she turns and gives me one of these looks like, can you, can you believe this? And I said, no, I, I can't believe it either. She's like, right? I'm like, yeah, like that kid's making like $9 an hour. And he showed up here on a Sunday morning at eight o'clock to serve us hot dogs and pops for a buck. I mean, there's so much unbelievable about that. Like, I can't believe we got a hot dog and a pop for a buck. I can't believe that kid got out of bed on a Sunday morning at probably six o'clock to come down here and work for, like I say, nine bucks an hour at the time. This is like 15 years ago and try to just sort of shift her perspective. Because the thing is, how does she know that's not my kid? Like, how does she know that's not my boss's kid or, you know, et cetera, right? So anyway, always be careful. So more specific, the last piece I really wanted to talk about was underwriting. And I'm just gonna put it out there. I'm gonna suggest if lenders haven't already started doing it, which I think a couple have in some cases, I think you're gonna start seeing requests potentially for bank statements in which the person's account, uh, their, their, their checking account, wherever their pay is being deposited, instead of 90 days history for down payment, you're going to start seeing requests for 90 days history of the account in which the person's paycheck is deposited for a couple different reasons. 
one, have they been cut back? Are they actually still making the same amount of money? Well, the pay stub would say that, but the real reason I think they're gonna be asking for those statements is for a couple other reasons. So declines are starting to abound over deferrals, not necessarily deferred mortgage payments, but deferred car payments. So some of those show up on the bureau, some of them perhaps not. Uh, so again, if a, if a lender gets 90 days bank statements and they see a car payment and then none, or a car payment or two and then none, what's happened there? The bank statements though, I think before I go on about the deferrals, I'll just in, insert a, a less um, common thing, but uh, applicants collecting the CERB. So employed applicants who have jobs who also applied for the CERB benefit, uh, those people will be declined. If the lender discovers that your applicant has been collecting the CERB while employed, that's fraud. So applicants don't want fraudulent clients, so they'll get declined for that. So that's one of the other reasons I think those statements are gonna start being requested, certainly in some cases anyways. But going back to the deferral piece, which of course the credit bureaus are, are reporting whether or not payments are being deferred, uh, I gather. So what's that about? Well, I mean, there's really only one good reason that a client can give for deferring a payment, and that's financial distress, like arguably. And I know we've talked about deferring mortgage payments as a strategic piece so you're not gobbling up savings in case you're worried about losing your job it's a little bit of hedging in advance but you can't go and put an application in for a refinance asking for more money to remodel your kitchen while at the same time deferring your payments which the whole idea of the deferral is that you are concerned about the future so if you're concerned about your future maybe refinancing to remodel the kitchen, refinancing to pull down payment money to buy another property, uh, you know, isn't, isn't quite logical. So of course, obviously a lot of people were strategically deferring and they're gonna have to strategically stop the deferral so that when they go in for the financing, no payments are currently in deferral. No lender for the most part, I shouldn't say no, but the majority of lenders will not be approving files where there's a mortgage payment or a car payment or any kind of payment in deferral. It's just not a thing that's gonna happen. And that's largely because when you think about it, a lender, uh, an underwriter is really an extension of the investor. And so their policies are an extension of the investor's requirements. And they're looking for signs of financial distress in every file and payments in deferral uh, taken just because they could, the client could, that's not a great answer. So as I say, bank statements and credit bureaus, they're gonna be going, gone through with a fine tooth comb at this point. And, you know, again, I often say to clients when they start to get wrapped in knots about, you know, why am I having to prove all this? Why am I having to send all these documents? What do you need next? A hair sample, a blood sample, what's it gonna be? Um, look, would you loan your money at 2.5%, 2.25%, like, and I've, I've literally used these words with clients in the past, like, would you loan your money out at 2%? Like, that's ridiculous. And you, you wouldn't, you just wouldn't lend your money at 2%. And if you were gonna lend your money at 2%, boy, I bet you'd have a list of like a thousand conditions 
to lend it because the one thing you want to know is you're going to get your money back because you're getting like no return on your money. Really, all you're doing is trying to park it somewhere safely and get a slightly better return than you would just leaving it in a bank account. And at this point, there's GICs that are paying the same as mortgage rates. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm a Canadian mortgage lender, why do I have BDMs and underwriters and marketing and a capital markets department? Why do I have all this to put money out at two and a half percent? I'm gonna go buy myself a GIC at two and a half percent and I'd be way ahead of the game, less overhead. There's more to it. It's not quite that simple of a business model, but, but seriously, it's pretty incredible. And usually clients, they do kind of come around and chuckle at that. Like, yeah, okay, I guess I wouldn't loan my money at 2% to just anybody either. So maybe that language helps you. Now, one of the other decline reasons we're seeing is this laser-like focus on credit history. And I was speaking with a broker. They were incensed that a client had declined, or pardon me, that a lender had declined a client of theirs over an R9 from three years ago. And these people are absolutely trying to take steps to downsize, take a smaller mortgage, put themselves in a better position financially, clear off a bunch of debt, et cetera, et cetera. And so logically, it didn't make sense that the lender would decline this, except that you got to take a step back and look at it from the perspective of risk, risk, risk. So there's two things. Number one, the clients did have an R9. At some point, they stopped paying some kind of debt. And it's very easy for people to say things like, well, that was a $2,000 credit card balance. It was a $20 a month gym membership. They got into a dispute over. It was this, it was that, it was the other thing. Uh-huh. 20 bucks a month? and they stopped paying two grand, they couldn't pay, but we should loan them $300,000? Like, do the math on that. Like, clients think it's no big deal to blow off a $2,000 balance. I wouldn't blow off a $300,000 balance, but the lender's looking at it going, if you can't make the payments on two grand, why would we give you 300 grand? You know, there's two sides to that, that perspective. So that's kind of important to keep in mind. But the other, and, and so, pardon me, and the other piece to that too is that lenders looking at the file going, well, okay, it might reduce the risk, but they still have this track record. And right now, they're not our risk at all. We have zero exposure to this client. So if we approve this mortgage, while this client may be in a better position and might do a better job, um, it's now our responsibility. Right now, their mortgage is over there. So whether it's twice as big or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect that that current or the new lender. So that's the other reason they may say thanks, but no thanks. And the other piece is a lot of times, and you've heard me say this before, the problem isn't the problem. All right, the problem isn't the problem. What's the real problem? Well, let me give you a bigger example. There's a lender that I remember having a conversation uh, with one of the, the higher ups one time. That lender has virtually zero clients over the age of 65. And if they are over the age of 65, it's generally because they've turned 65 plus since getting the mortgage. In other words, there's basically a zero approval policy for applicants over the age of 65. Now, of course, you can't do that. You can't discriminate on age. Uh, my, my record setter was an 85-year-old client. I believe she was 85. She was in her 80s. And um, 
we set her up on a refinance. The purpose of the funds was actually to help cover off uh, some investments that were paying her return back that outweighed the interest expense. And the return was being used to fund in-home healthcare. So she was basically refinancing her house so that she could pay a nurse to live in her home and take care of her and allow her to live out her final days in her home, which I think were, I think she went about six more years and she did pass away in that home. And, uh, and we helped make all that happen with a 30 year amortization, 85 years old, a 30 year amortization. Not about whether the mortgage is going to get paid off by the applicant. It's going to get paid off by the sale of the property, by the disposition of the asset. So a lender is not allowed to discriminate based on age. However, tying it back into that R9 of three years ago, how can this still be held against these people? How can a lender not approve mortgages for people over 65 years old? There's other things going on. So in the case of the R9 from three years ago, it wasn't so much about the client, it was about the location. The area of Canada, I'm just gonna be very general, but the area of the country and, and, and people in Alberta, people in Atlantic Canada, you know what I'm talking about. There's lenders that don't lend in Atlantic Canada at all. There's lenders that have left Atlantic Canada for years and then come back into Atlantic Canada. And they don't wanna lend in these areas. And that's again, the investors driving lender policy. So what's happening is there's geographical areas in Canada where lenders are, the investors are skittish and the lenders are therefore acting skittish and they, they don't want to put money into those areas, but they haven't put a policy in place saying they're gonna geographically limit lending. So they just look at every file with that much more of laser-like focus. Is there another reason we can decline this file? In other words, it's gonna to have to be utterly perfect to get approved in this area where that, that three-year-old R9 might've been approved in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver or downtown Halifax or downtown Montreal like that, it is not getting approved in many other parts of Canada now. They're just the lenders and the investors are tightening up. What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? What is happening? So the problem isn't always the problem. So when we're looking at the file through our lens going, but, but this just makes sense. You have to take a couple steps back and go, well, what else is at work here? Like, where is this money coming from? And where am I, where is this client located? And if this client, were to stop paying for any reason, how marketable is this property and where are property values going in this general area? Like what, is, what does this really look like? So the problem isn't always the problem, right? And as far as that credit union went that I mentioned, I, should, didn't, I didn't say they were a credit union originally, did I? Well, see, there you go. Anyway, it was a credit union, uh, not one in BC, it was in another province, but where they were coming from was they would find other reasons to decline the file. That's the bottom line. So lenders can always find a reason to decline a file. There's always something, right? If it isn't the property, who knows? And that brings me to my closing point. And my closing point is this. I took a poll a little while ago and it was very satisfying that like, I think it was 80% or 90% of respondents said, yes, we do this. But the 10% to 20% that didn't, um, you got to tighten your game up, guys. Like the, the ship has sailed on not having all conditions met, not having all subjects approved. 
before the date of COF or subject removal. So in BC, we call it subject removal. In Ontario, it's called COF, conditions of funding. When you've got a live purchase contract, as many of you have on your desk right now, and the subject removal date is Friday, right? The COF date is Friday. That file at a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, you need to have a written response from the lender confirming income is signed off and approved, down payment is signed off and approved, and the appraisal is signed off and approved. Because if you are advising clients to remove their subjects, remove their conditions this Friday, and they don't have those three things signed off, and really my, 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 my plan was always 100% of conditions, like right down to the void check, everything is in hand, everything is reviewed, and everything is signed off. Did I work a lot of Friday nights till six, seven, eight o'clock? Were there a lot of underwriters working till six, seven, eight o'clock on Fridays? You bet there were, a lot. And I recognize there's condition-free offers. That's a different kettle of fish. That's a different topic. I'm talking about the offers that do have conditions or subjects in them. You cannot allow your clients to waive conditions until these things are signed off. I did have a client who the, the um, lender called to confirm employment and that triggered the talk. The client got let go. If that call had come in the day after the client had gone firm, they had no idea they were going to lose their job. I didn't like being the catalyst for them finding out a couple of weeks early that they were going to lose their job. But boy, oh boy, I'm glad the lender made that call. And I'm glad HR, you know, said, hey, we've got to let this person know what's happening because this lender's trying to confirm employment and we can't really confirm their employment because they're not going to be employed here anymore. You know, this, this policy served many of you very, very well coming into this pandemic experience, clearly. But it, it shocks me. It really does. It shocks me that there are still so many people out there in our industry practicing this crazy Wild West type of brokering. You can't do it anymore. You just can't afford the risk. You just can't afford it. And your clients can't afford to lose their deposits. They can't afford to lose their down payment money because they're unable to close. And appraisals, you can't put those off anymore. Depending on what market you're in, maybe it's stable. Maybe it's gone down a bit. Maybe the client's overpaid. Maybe they haven't. There's no way to know. So unless you yourself have the cash to lend at 2% to the client, you can't tell a client they're good to go until you have those two magic words in your inbox, broker complete. That's what I always looked for, right? File complete, broker complete. I want to see that from the lender. And that's when I'm going to let the client know we've met all these conditions, right? Now there's still a bit more of a conversation around what if the client loses their job a month from now and the closing is three months from now. That's also a factor. But if you're watching the emails coming out from lenders, you're seeing lenders changing policies with regards to when they're reconfirming income, if at all. Uh, I was on the phone with uh, one of our counterparts in the US. In the US, they are still calling to confirm, to reconfirm employment the day of completion. The day of completion, they're calling to confirm employment. Like, how? How do you even communicate that to a client? Like that's completely beyond the client's control, whether they're going to lose their job or not over the next eight weeks between now and completion. 
And to know that you're right down to the closing date and there's no time left to do anything to fix this thing, that's a whole nother level of pain. Luckily, we don't have very much of that in our industry now. Most lenders are, are down to 14 days or 30 days out from completion uh, increasingly. And of course, some lenders, once it's file complete, they don't reconfirm anything. If that file is broker complete, you're done. There's no reconfirming the income with certain lenders and you should know which lenders those are. So pretty important stuff. So that's what I got for you on a Monday. And uh, I'm gonna keep it super short and sweet. Nobody's typed in a question. And before you do, I'm gonna try and wrap it up. I think that's 25 minutes flat. That's gotta be an all time record. Tomorrow I have a broker panel and I should tell you who's gonna be on that panel, but I'm trying to adjust a little bit uh, who's gonna be on that panel. We've got a couple great people. I'm trying to bring a third person in because I, I lost my third person. I'm trying to find another third person, but there'll be two amazing people on there for sure. And it should be a really great conversation. And uh, last week's broker panel was, was, was very real, very grounded. Uh, this week's still real, but like next level. It's, it's uh, some people who are definitely in that next level and have really hit their stride. So anyway, I'll see you guys in uh, 23 and a half hours. Have a fantastic Monday. Take care.